about you. I just wish we had some young, passionate worship leaders in this church. I, they did an amazing job. Thank you guys. Yep. Amen. And uh, Cactus and Chapel and Venue, thanks for joining us. I, I hope and trust you had a great time of worship. It was uh, wild walking in here today after being gone for two months, and it would have been the same at the other campuses and venues if I walked in there, because I, I walked in today, and every one of you are in the same spots as when I left two months ago. So I feel like I, I you know, everything's the same. You're all in your same places. And, uh, you know, I dialed in, uh, Kim and I were in Michigan for two months. I, I dialed in every week uh, to uh, hear what you guys were hearing. And all I can say is that you were treated to some good teaching from some really godly pastors. Amen? Yeah, you were. And, uh, you know, from O.S. Hawkins, who kicked it off, to Kruckenberg and Kimmel and Loritz and Del Husay and Lucas Cooper. And then I, I have to say, because I'm biased, my, my favorites, because they are our in-house guys who are clearly coming into their own, Rustin and Kevin just did an amazing job. They really did. And uh, the, the only thing I didn't like was Rustin's imitation of me. That was not, not good. And... Uh, in fact, you know, when he did that, he leaned over and started yelling. I said to Kim, do I do that? She said, yes, you do do that. She said, at church and at home. And uh, so, but it's really good to be back. I, I got to tell you guys, I, I can't stress this enough. I really missed you. I, uh, I, I appreciated the sabbatical time away. It was productive uh, for my soul and my family, as well as for uh, future writing and stuff. But um, I, I'm more than ready to be back. And, uh, and even given all the heat of Arizona here, it's been an uh, amazing first week to be back with all of you. Now, you will notice today uh, that I have decided to spend the next couple of weeks focusing on this topic of, of joy. And some of you immediately are thinking, you're just doing this to you know, promote your book and, and talk about what's in your book and what have you. Actually, I'm not. In fact, what I'm going to share with you today and then continuing on next week is not found in the book that I just wrote called How Joyful People Think. It's not found in there at all. In fact, the stuff I'm going to share with you today is rather new stuff. There's a couple of old stuff mixed in, but it's all new thoughts that God gave me over the summer, and it's kind of a prelude to the book if you choose to read it. The book is how to think in such a way as to have joy. I'll talk about that in a second, but what we're talking about today, and you'll see why I titled this in a minute, is why Christians, generally speaking, stink at joy. And so you're going to be greatly challenged today, but also very, very encouraged. This will not be a downer uh, two weeks at all. How could it be? We're talking about joy. So you're going to like it. So let's bow and pray, and we're going to dive right into God's word. Father, I thank you that as we're going to see today, elevated to an extremely high level is this character trait of joy, a fruit of the spirit, the, the fullness that we get from Jesus, the thing that can keep us going when life is the most dark. And God, as we're going to see today, joy is not happiness, it's not giddy, it's not superficial. It's very deep 
deeply felt emotion that you give us that can only come when we do the hard work in your presence and experience the fruit of you in our lives. So God, help us understand it rightly today. Help us to own where we are with it. And Lord, uh, may we at the very least, by the end of our time today, salivate more after joy, if not find a little bit more of it. That's my prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the title, which I thought all summer about, of this little mini-series says it all, Why Christians Stink at Joy. And, uh, you know, the old saying goes that when you point a finger at somebody, how many fingers are pointing back at yourself? Three. And so as I point the finger at the Christian world and even at you guys and say most or many Christians stink at joy, you need to know that I join the ranks. I join the ranks of millions of Christians who, who watch this, claim to have a, a saving, eternal faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, and then they claim to walk with him on a moment-by-moment basis, and yet simultaneous with all that, they struggle daily with abiding joy. And again, I get it because I experience that. Let's be honest in the house or houses of God right now. I experience that all the time in my Christian life. It was actually an amazing journey for this book. Uh, This book started three and a half years ago uh, when I did a series here at Scottsdale Bible Church on one verse in the Bible. You guys might remember it. It was Philippians 4.8. And it's a book, uh, sorry, a verse on how to think. And so we did a series called Attitude. And we took a look at this verse where it says, finally, brothers, you know, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And we did an entire nine-week series looking at eight lines of thought to better our attitude. And out of that series, I thought, hey, maybe this could be a book. So I submitted a book proposal, Tim Kimmel helped me with it, to an agent. And I'll never forget the day that I got my dear Jamie letter from the agent. And he essentially said, no one wants to buy a book on attitude. And I thought, okay, well, there's a book like from God's word, but okay, I guess maybe not. And so I decided to go right to the source. I went to a publisher, Baker, the largest family-owned, longest-standing Christian publisher in the nation. I've always respected them, and I sent it to Baker, and I did ask one author who's published with them to at least ask them to read it. And it waited a few months, and they got back to me, and this is where things heated up. The senior editorial director at Baker got a hold of me and said, you know, I, I think we might be on to something with this book and with this verse. <laughs> he said, but nobody wants to buy a book on attitude. He said, why don't we just write a book on how to think and how to think in the way that God wants you to think? And I said, I can do that. And then as we started to talk about it more and we're signing the contracts and all that, that's when they inserted this thing called joy. Because one of them at Baker looked at the next verse after verse 8, in which the promise is this, that if you do these things, if you think this way, what's the promise? The God of peace will be with you. Or more literally, the God who is peace will be with you. And peace and joy are always bedfellows in the, in the, in the, in the scriptures. And, and so the book became how to think in such a way that maybe joy is going to be the byproduct. That happened about two and a half years ago. And here is where the problem began. 
because when I told my buddy Schrader that I was writing a book called How Joyful People Think, he nailed it when he said, that's a great title. It just doesn't fit the author very well. (laughs) You gotta have friends like that, right? And Tom is right. I mean, my wife is a joyful person and we have joyful people on staff here. But you see, here's the problem with joy. The reason I know that most Christians stink at joy is because I talk to your neighbors. I talk to your coworkers. And when I ask them, please describe the Christians that you know, and that includes me, here's the description I get. And it's not a bad description. They say, well, Jamie, let me tell you about him. Man, he is serious. He is sober. He's intense. He's moral. He's principled. He's even politically active. I mean, all good and honorable traits, right? The problem is, is that I hardly ever hear the neighbor of a Christian or the coworker of a Christian say, man, that person is the most joyful person on planet earth. Man, they just like ooze joy out of every fiber in their being. I just don't hear that very often. How about you? And the disconnect is here, is that then when I ask Christians about it, what answer do they give? Oh, oh no, Jimmy, my neighbor doesn't understand. I'm really joyful in here, right? Which is why I said before I left, you might want to just tell your face then. Because Christians can claim all they want, that they're joyful in here. But here's what Jesus said about that. This is your savior speaking, Matthew 7, 16. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the problem is, is that we can say all we want that we're joyful, but the onlooking world sees something different. And so I would say it this way, and this is why I'm so confident that we need to have a joy infusion among believers in this world and even in our church, because for every Christian that I know who is joyful, I know three or four who aren't. And therein lies the dilemma. We need to wrestle with this thing called joy. And you guys need to know, I've been wrestling with it for three years now. God has had me in a headlock every day. He's been putting this thing called joy in front of me. And many days I just say, God, get it out of there. There's other traits I'm interested in. But God says, no, and you'll see why in a minute. This one needs to be on your radar. So what do we do about this? And more to the point, why specifically, ever wrestle with this, why is it that Christians, many of them, if not a lot of them, stink at joy? And if it's true, if you're done being offended by that question and you're ready to answer it, what do you think we can do about it? Four things I want to share with you this week and next. This is a two-part series. Four things that will very much help each and every one of us understand and know why Christians tend to struggle with daily joy. Four things the Bible makes very clear. Four things that we can turn into very positive, here's what you can do kind of things. And the starting place in all of this is this, and it's point one. And that is that the reason Christians struggle with joy is that we don't realize the absolute importance that God places on joy. It's true. Some of you don't realize this about your life, but this is the the core reason you struggle with joy. It's because God places it here in his list of important things, and you have it about right here. You're in the realm, you think it's kind of an important trait, but you have not seen the absolute importance that God places on it. And how do I know that is true? Because I talk to you guys. 
When I've told a bunch of people this summer, because I've been back and forth and stuff, you know, hey, I'm going to do a quick two-week series on why Christians stink at joy, this has been the response that I've gotten from quite a few Christians. They say, well, come on, Jamie. Yeah, it's true that serious, sober, intense, moral, principled, politically active Christians are not necessarily the most joyful of all of God's creations, but there are more important things than joy. The Bible says that. So aren't you being kind of hard on the church? And let me give you the simple, straightforward answer to that question. No, I am not being too hard on the church. And here's my point. The response that downplays the importance of joy is precisely the problem of why so many Christians stink at it. We don't elevate joy to its rightful place in God's economy and in our lives. Let me quickly show you what I mean. I'm going to show you a few passages right now, just two, and then we'll rattle off a few others, in which you cannot wiggle out of the importance that God places on this thing called joy. Uh, here's the first one. When I left you in June for my time of way, we had just completed a three-week series, if you remember, on John 15, the first 11 verses. And it was a series on closeness with God, how to abide in the vine and how to stay close to God. And, and I, I didn't, I, by intention, I did not talk about the very last verse, verse 11 because I knew I'd be coming back and talking to you about joy. Look at how Jesus wraps up this section on how to get close to God. After looking at the first 10 verses on abiding, he says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, this sounds like such a simple poetic phrase, but I want you to think about something as you're looking at this verse here that Jesus is, is truly saying. When he says, my joy, park on that for a second. Jesus, almost every Christian agrees, is the eternal second person of the Trinity who before he came to this earth lived for all of eternity in perpetual joyful relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Give me a head nod that y'all would agree with that. That's good Christian theology. So Jesus has experienced eternal bliss and joy all, I mean, think about how long eternity is, like for eternity, and then he becomes the incarnate son of God, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and as that, now you're ready to get this, he says, my joy is going to be in you so that your joy will be full. Some of you have missed me doing this. I looked up that word full in the original Greek, and you know what it means? Say it with me. Full. It means filled up, brimming over. How many Christians do you know that epitomize verse 11 here? So, thank you, Betty. It's you. Very few. Very few. Uh, very few people I know really live out verse 11 here, and yet if you ask me, it seems like Joy is kind of crucial to our walk with God that Jesus puts a premium on this thing called joy. If you're not convinced, look at this passage. You guys have read this one a thousand times. It's the famous fruit of the spirit passage. But the fruit of the spirit is love. Say the word with me, joy. And then it'll go on to list seven other traits like gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control. But isn't it interesting that, that the order of this starts with love because that is the most important 
And we talk about that all the time around here. But right on the coattails, right, right there in second place is joy. And it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that the Spirit lives in you. I, I don't have time to go into all of this today, gang, but, but you need to know it's all over the place in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus would tell us in John 16 that when you're most hurting, your grief can be turned into joy. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2.3 that he is overflowing with joy even in all of his affliction. Hebrews 12 reminds us when Jesus was on the cross, he had joy. Think about that one. James tells us it's possible to have joy in the midst of all of our trials. Peter tells us that though none of us have ever seen Jesus, that through our faith in him, we have joy inexpressible. Jude claims that God is able to make you stand in his presence with great, say the word with me, joy. Listen to me. I've read the Bible. There is not one New Testament writer that fails to mention the virtue and even the absolute importance of joy in God's economy and in our lives. It's that important to God. And so maybe look at it this way. This might help you. Remember that old SAT test that we took when we were getting into college? Raise your hand if you remember the SAT test, many of you. Well, if you didn't, here's some of the questions they had on your SAT test. I remember they were kind of weird. One of the questions was a question like this. A bird is to a wing as a picture is to a, and then we'll give you a blank. And it would give you four choices, A, watermelon, B, a car, C, sunglasses, or D, a frame. And you go, well, that one's easy. A bird is to a wing as a picture is to a frame. And you got that one right. It would just get harder from that point on. They're called relational logic questions. So maybe this is what God is saying in the Bible to us. Joy is to our walk with God as marriage is to our relationships. So think about the whole realm of relationships and all the relationships that you have and think about how important marriage is. Even for those of you who have been divorced, how hurtful and catastrophic that was because marriage is such an important thing to our relationships. Could it be that God is saying joy is like that to your walk with God? Or how about this one? Uh, joy is to our walk with God as a PhD is to education. Most of you who are educated don't have a PhD. I don't, <laughs> probably never will. Uh, but if I did, I'd be very proud of that. Could it be that joy in God's economy is that, that PhD level? Or this is my favorite one. Uh, joy is to our walk with God as the Cleveland Browns are to losing, <laughs> right? So you consider the whole realm of losing in this world. And like the Browns are so good at that, aren't they? It's going to be a different season, though. Baker Mayfield, and we're going to do much better this year, but they're still going to experience this uh, quite often this year, most likely. In all seriousness, could it be that joy is a lot more important than many of us have ever realized? And again, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, especially some of you men. Well, Jamie, I'm just not into this, you know, giddy, superficial, always smiling, Christian type of thing. Look, in a minute, we're going to sabotage that one. That's not what we're talking about. What I need you to see right now, men, no matter how tough you are, no matter how rugged you are, no matter how successful you are, that for whatever you think of joy, we're going to cement what it is in a minute. God says that thing better be front and center in your life if you want to claim to be a follower of me. 
if you want to claim to have been with me. That's why God's had me in a headlock for the last three years. Because Carl, I've had to come to grips with this thing called joy. Whether I feel I have it or not, it's that important in God's economy. And one of the reasons many of us stink at it is because we just haven't realized how much God wants us to have it. Now, once we've established this first reason why so many Christians stink at joy because they fail to realize its importance, we're ready for the second reason why Christians fall flat on the joy scale. And this one's very important as well, and that is that we don't know what we are aiming for when it comes to joy. In other words, you and I are hazy and unclear as to precisely what joy is and even how to recognize it when it might come into our lives. And so our aim is off when it comes to joy. And so though we did this a few years ago here at SBC when I did a message on joy in the Fruit of the Spirit series, I want to clarify with you once again what joy is, because it is a complicated definition. It really is, because it's such a rich and deep trait that God wants to give us. And so here is a very good working definition of joy that I hope you never forget. And that is that joy is defined as a longing and a desire in your soul that's built upon hope. I know some of you weren't expecting this. Joy, our best biblical definition, is a longing and desire built upon hope. And so notice with me that joy is indeed an emotion. It's something felt, it's visceral in nature. And it's an emotion that flows from your thoughts as well as your experiences. I lay that out in, our, in, in my book. But, but get this, gang, it's not some giddy, shallow, feel-good type of emotion that many equate with it. I'm going to call that happiness. No, joy is very different than that. Joy, according to the Bible, is a very patient emotion, even an incomplete emotion. We'll get to that in a second. It's an anticipatory emotion that wells up with positive longing, a deep desire, even a thirst that begins to flood your soul with hope. That's joy. So I love how C.S. Lewis nails it in his groundbreaking book, Surprised by Joy, years ago, when he says this, joy is an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. <laughs> Whoa. It's an unsatisfied desire. We'll talk about what that means in a second here. But once you experience it, once you get a taste of it, once you distinguish it from happiness, it becomes so addictive that it's more desirable than any other satisfaction this side of heaven. Maybe that's why God elevates it like he does. It's a longing and a desire in our soul. That's the essence of joy, but a longing desire that's full of hope. You know, the word joy in the New Testament, you can count it yourself if you want to, appears about 59 times. It's the Greek word kara, C-H-A-R-A. That's a transliteration from the Greek, kara. And it's a fascinating word when you look at it in the context of all the different 59 usages found in the New Testament. And when you look closely at all the usages in the New Testament, and I have, you start to see that this definition of joy being a longing and a desire built upon hope really is the definition of joy. Now, let me show you very quickly 
In John 16, verses 20 to 21, believe it or not, this is probably the quintessential depiction of joy that Jesus gives us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy, kara. And then he says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Every word here is pregnant with meaning, no pun intended. This is an amazing, amazing teaching of Jesus here. I got to have you wrestle with this just for about 60 seconds with me right now. Jesus says that our grief can turn into joy, and then he describes joy in verse 21 here. And he uses the analogy of a woman giving birth to a child. And he says that there's pain in the birth process, but as soon as that little baby is born, there is joy. Now watch this, that a child has been born into the world. I need you to wrestle with what do you think that the woman is experiencing when she experiences that joy. And by the way, every one of you ladies here who's given birth and at Cactus and Venue and Chapel, every one of you watching online, you, you know the answer to this. And that's that that woman is experiencing at that moment the kind of joy that's built upon a longing and a desire that the presence of a newborn child brings to the life of a woman. It's a hope of all that that child is now going to bring to her life and the world. A woman who's sitting there after giving birth to a child is basically dreaming about that child growing up and becoming an adult and becoming a believer someday and and, and getting married. and, And there's all this hopes and wishes and dreams and longing and desire. Is that true, ladies? Yes or no? It is. And it's because of that that Jesus tells us that is the the recipe. Those are the ingredients of joy. It's a longing. It's an anticipation. It's a thirst built upon hope of a positive future with God in this world. And that's what gives us that feeling of joy. If you don't believe me, look at how Jesus would say this in John 8, 56. He says, your father Abraham, quick review of Abraham, he lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, the father of the Jewish nation, but he gave a promise God did to Abraham and said that through you all nations will be blessed. So someday through Israel, salvation is going to come to the entire world, which is why Jesus came to this earth. Quick history lesson there. Look at what he says. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my, Jesus's day, and he saw it in his mind's eye, and he was glad, kara, joyful. So this is a fascinating verse. Abraham did not actually experience the coming of Jesus into this world. He lived 1,500 years before Jesus. But claiming the promise that God was someday going to bless all nations through Jesus, Abraham embraced that, believed that, he saw that, and just the anticipation of that gave him, say the word with me, joy. So what is joy? It's a longing, it's an anticipation, it's a desire. It's a taste we get now of what God is doing, just a taste, because full joy is not until heaven, but given that taste, it changes everything. This is why Romans 12, 12 says rejoice in hope. It's why Hebrews 12, 2 says Jesus had joy on the cross. 
because he was getting a taste of the salvation that was going to be given to the whole world as well as being reunited with the Father. But it wasn't there yet. And that's how joy works. It's a longing for a child's future. It's the longing for a coming Messiah. It's the longing to be reunited with the Father. That's joy. And it's a longing that though not completely satisfied this side of heaven, it's certainly not a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing. It's just that, and you're feeling this right now, it's a very different emotion than almost any other emotion that we get this side of heaven. That's joy. And the reason that this is hard for many Christians, and I don't have time to spend a lot of time on this. You can go back two and a half years when I did a full message on joy and its definition. But, but there is another word in the Bible for, the people confuse it for joy, it, it, it's the word for pleasure or happiness, and it's the Greek word hedone, where we get the English word hedonist from. Hedonist is somebody who loves pleasure. And it's actually a fascinating study when you study hedone, because hedone is that immediate gratification that you get from the things in this world. And the Bible doesn't say that hedonay is bad. It just says that it's shallow, giddy, and be really careful of it because it's really addicting and you can get addicted to it and miss the joy that God wants to give you. I know it's hard to picture any Christian doing that, but just go with me. There are people out there that get addicted to the next meal. Like they're thinking on Sunday, oh, what can I have for lunch today? You're thinking that even right now as we're talking about joy for crying out loud. You're thinking about what you're gonna eat after church and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A and get a four-count, you know, large waffle fry and a Coke. No, it's closed today, so you're not going to get that. <laughs> See, and, and, and so we, we, we train our soul to think pleasure. What's my next purchase? How much do I have in my 401k? Ooh, what TV shows can I watch tonight? Sunday night? Da, da, da. And, and that's how you plan your life. Think about it. You plan your life around pleasure because you want that immediate gratification. Hedone, not bad. The Bible just says be really careful with that because here's the point. That, I don't want to lean over and yell because now I'm, <laughs> he's ruined me. He has ruined me. <laughs> but I wanted to make a strong point. That's not joy. It's not. Joy is not happiness. Uh, joy is not that giddy feeling that you get from a good meal. That's not joy. Those are not bad things. But many Christians think that's what we mean by joy. It's not Joy is that longing and desire that you get in your soul that starts to give you a little bit of hope that can only come from God. And when you experience that, you say, Lord, I want more and more and more of that. And here's the thing, last thought and then one story. Here's the thing that really blows me away about joy. <laughs> and, and this one should blow you away too. And that is that joy, once rightly understood, can be found anytime, anywhere, even in the midst of the most difficult and dire circumstances of life. And that should convince you that joy isn't happiness, amen? Happiness will go up and down with your circumstances. Joy can be found in any circumstance, anywhere, anytime, if you will but choose to pursue it. I, I did a Facebook Live event this week with my, my new book, and we had people uh, ask questions, I guess, through text and all of this. And uh, what stunned me, and for those of you who saw it, you might have picked up on this, what stunned me is that the number, the number one question asked, and, and this just surprised me, I didn't expect it, was can I experience joy in the midst of depression? 
There's a lot of people struggling with depression out there today. If you were to ask the average person today who maybe doesn't understand the difference between joy and happiness or doesn't understand joy, can you experience joy simultaneous with depression? What would they say? No. But if you asked the God of the Bible, can you experience joy in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of terrible circumstances, even in the midst of emotions that are going haywire? Can you experience joy in the midst of all that? What's the answer to that? Yes. It's the weirdest thing in the whole world. It'll blow your Christian experience away. But I've experienced it. I've gotten that taste. And and it's a game changer if there ever was one. Closing story. As many of you know, my mom passed away uh, last December. And I shared a little bit about it with you. But it was a very, very brutal experience for me and more, more for my dad. Mom and dad have been married for 50 years. Mom was 82. Dad's 84. And uh, they were... I mean, incredibly close. In fact, one of the reasons my dad has never visited me here in Arizona is because mom couldn't travel. She had health problems and he would never leave her side. Just would not do it. And so in December, I had my quarterly visit with them and we knew mom was not doing well. She couldn't keep food down. We had no idea what was wrong with her, but she needed to go in the hospital. But she was already frail and and old and hospitals are dangerous places for people that are frail and old. And sure enough, she went to the hospital and she got a MRSA infection. And it got into her bloodstream and went right to her lungs. And so she was battling uh, that MRSA infection. And about a week or two after I had visited them in early December, I get a call from dad. I'm here in Scottsdale. It's a Monday. I'm in my easy chair. It's noon. And he says, you need to come. Mom's not doing well. So I jumped on a plane about 3 o'clock Arizona time. I flew into Columbus, Ohio. I got a rental car. I drove an hour and a half north to Worcester, Ohio, where mom and dad live. And I uh, went right to the hospital because uh, dad was home already. He's just exhausted by this point. My brother had driven in. He's with dad. And it was the most precious time. I got to the hospital not knowing what to expect. And mom was up. And she was awake. And she had a breathing mask on. And she immediately looked at me and said, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you came. And we spent about an hour together. It was just a precious time of praying. We sang her favorite hymn, My Fairest Lord Jesus. And, and uh, you know, we weren't talking about her dying because two weeks before when I had left, she said to me, and this was really painful, she said, because she knew she was really sick, she said, I, I don't want to die now. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to go. I, I love your dad. I love the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids. And so, you know, we didn't want mom to pass, so I wasn't going to talk about that in her presence but we had a precious hour together. I went home, uh, Home. I went to my dad's and uh, spent the night there. And then uh, the next day, my brother Pete went to the hospital and he called us right away and said, uh, mom's really in distress, you need to come. And when we got there, it was just not a pretty sight. Mom was struggling to breathe. And you know she was gonna pretty much die by struggling for every breath. And that's not a great way to die. So there we are in the hospital room. There's like two nurses, a doctor, my brother, my sister, my dad, me. And it's kind of chaotic. And, and, and they're all talking about whether we should put her on a breathing machine, you know, or not. And, da, 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 da. And, and mom started to get very confused. She was struggling for air. And she looked at me. She said, where, where are we? Who are these people? Why am I here? And oh, bless her heart. She was just so confused. And it was the most precious moment because I, I leaned down to her, and she's so tiny. She was four foot 11, 80 pounds, my mother. And, and I leaned down in this hospital bed, and I looked her in the eye, and I said, Mom, um, who am I? And she looked at me, and these were the last words she ever said to me. She said, you're my Jamie. 
That's what she said. You're my Jamie. I said, yes, I am. At that moment, the doctors said we really do need to put on a breathing machine because that might help her overcome the infection. At the very least, it will help her be comfortable, you know, when she dies. And so we didn't want to say goodbye to mom because she was still fighting. So we put her on the breathing machine. They put her in a coma. And uh, for the next two days, uh, she fought, but the infection just went all throughout her body. And by Thursday morning, her kidneys had shut down and some other organs, and she was going to die. So the doctors said, hey, take her off the machine, and in about two, three hours, she'll be gone. This is where my dad's morose sense of humor comes in. you got to remember, he loved this woman. Uh, we took her off the breathing machine, and she kept breathing. And all day Thursday, all day Friday, she kept breathing. And my dad said, she's always been a stubborn woman. <laughs> he said, even in death. And I said, Dad, the nurses don't find that funny. But, you know, it just he kept saying that, you know, she's a stubborn woman. And, uh, and, and so... You know, finally by Friday night, we had to take her to a hospice, and that was tough because it's so hard on my dad, and we're checking her into hospice, and, and by Saturday night, the 23rd of December, she, she's still breathing, but non-responsive, and, and dad finally went home at 9.30 on Saturday night, and uh, I'm sitting there with her alone, and I'm playing her, her Fernando Ortega hymns. My mom loved hymns. So I'm playing her fairest Lord Jesus and all creatures of our God and King, and I'm praying with her, and, 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 and I'm reading after doing all that, and I look up, and she's, she's gone. And it was actually a very, very tender moment. And I called Dad, and I said, hey, Dad, Mom, Mom's gone. And uh, he said, you handle it. He, he just, he just, just I, I don't want to handle this. And so I dealt with the funeral home. I mean, I'm a minister. I do these things. And I got mom's jewelry. She'd never taken off her ring in, in 50 years. And I, I got her jewelry. And I, I went home to pop. And uh, just suffice it to say, the next day was really hard. The next day was Christmas Eve. I'd never been away from my family ever for over 30 years on Christmas Eve. Never been away from my church on Christmas Eve. But I said to Kim, I need to stay with dad. And dad, let's just suffice it to say, understandably was not in a good mood. And when my dad's in a bad mood, I mean, he was born in 1934, middle of the depression. His dad died when he was in seven, when he was seven in World War II. You know, he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, an attorney. You can fill in all the gaps. When he's in a bad mood, it ruins everybody's day. And dad was not in a good mood. And on Christmas Eve night, I said to him, I said, hey, pop, why don't we go to church he didn't even answer me. He just looked at me, and I could tell he wasn't going to church. And I thought, well, I mean, it is Christmas Eve, but what do you want to do? And I kid you not, he said, I want to go to P.F. Chang's. <laughs> and it's snowing out, and P.F. Chang's is an hour away. He lives in a, a rural town. So I said, Dad, that's in Akron. He goes, I want to go to P.F. Chang's. So we get in his car, we drive an hour through the snow to P.F. Chang's. We're the only ones in there. And he is just depressed. I get it. He's depressed. It's, I mean, he's lost the love of his life. He, he's not doing well. And so it's very quiet at the dinner table. And, you know, I ordered Kung Pao or whatever their version of it. He orders beef meal, you know, and, and we're eating. And, and you can't make this stuff up. At one point in dinner, I, I just put a bite into my mouth, like a big bite. And he looks at me and he goes, you know what? You need to lose weight. <laughs> That's what he said to me. And I go, yeah. And it didn't help the cause that I just put a big bite of food in my mouth, you know, and some look like a fat guy eating a big meal. And, uh, and before I could say anything else, again, you can't make this stuff up. And you got to remember, this is old school. My dad's old school. Before I could say anything else, he says to me, you know, your mother always wanted you to lose weight. 
Now, I have a tremendous amount of respect for my dad. I really do. But I was like, you know, I didn't say this. I thought about it. I thought, you know what? She hadn't even been dead 24 hours. And you're bringing her into this. That is a low blow, dad. But I took it on the chin. I said, yeah, you know, your dad, you're right. I, gotta, I know I need to lose weight. And he's went on and on about it. You know, it was just an awful meal. I didn't order dessert. And uh, so... <laughs> So we get back home, and, uh, and, and I, I, again, I respect my dad, so I give him a big hug. I said, I love you, Pop. And I, and I went down to the basement. By, by the way, that's where I sleep when I go visit my dad. When I travel with the church, I stay in a Hilton, you know, something like that, you know, not, not a high-end one, just a Hampton Inn or something. But when I visit my dad, he puts me in the basement like I'm 12. I've reminded him that that's against the law nowadays, keeping kids in the basement. But I go down to the basement, it's an old Midwest basement, drop ceiling, spider webs, and I sleep on a futon, okay? We just established I'm fat, and I'm sleeping on a futon. So there I am in the basement. I'm sleeping on a futon. Dad's all depressed. I'm not in a great mood either now because I'm fat and all this other stuff. And all I could think of is my wife back here in Scottsdale, my kids who I'm away from on Christmas. And honestly, I thought about this. I thought of all of you. Isn't this just a pathetic sight? I thought of all of you lighting candles and singing Silent Night because that's what you were doing. And my dad didn't even want to go to church. And so I did what I always do when I'm discouraged and that's that I decided to read this book. I'd actually been reading it for 14 nights in a row. I don't usually read the Bible at night. That's not my MO. But uh, with mom being so sick and it being so exhausting, I started two weeks earlier reading a chapter in Romans. Romans is my go-to book when I'm hurting. Romans every night during this ordeal. And nothing had really hit me. But that night I opened up to chapter 15 because that's where I was at and I started reading. And I got to tell you, God who is good sabotaged me with his word. Look at what it says in Romans 15, verse 13. This is what I read Christmas Eve last year when you guys were lighting candles and singing Silent Night and feeling really good. I wasn't, and I'm in my dad's basement, and I read this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all, say the word with me, joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you're saying, what hit you about that? Next slide. Here's what hit me. First thing that hit me is that God is a God of hope. See, in that moment, even though I'm the pastor of your church, even though I've been a Christian for 38 years, I was losing my hope. I was forgetting where mom was in glory in the presence of Jesus. I was getting disturbed and bummed out about dad's mood and the exhaustion of two weeks and mom who didn't want to die, but God decided to take her anyways. And last night somebody yelled out, and you're fat. That's right, and I'm fat. And, and that's bothering me that night too. And though those might seem little things to you, they were just zapping my hope. And the first thing that hit me here is that God is a God of hope. Now, the question becomes, how do you get that hope? And here's what he says, that he fills us with all joy and peace. Now watch this, in believing. That's what hit me. The joy and peace are not gonna come from this circumstance that I'm in, amen? You don't get joy and peace from your dad calling you fat. You don't get joy and peace from grieving the loss of your mother. You don't get joy and peace from being in a difficult situation. Joy and peace are not found in those situations. They can be found in them, but watch this. They're found through believing. And the question that God asked me that night is, Jamie, do you believe in me? 
Do you believe that I am in your life? Do you believe that I am good? Do you believe that I'm your savior? Do you believe that I'm always active in your life? Do you believe that every day of your mother's life was ordained by me, even her passing? Do you believe that? And see, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, amen? Do you believe? And God said that if you do, you will abound in hope. Now, I'm reading that, I'm understanding that. Here's what I can't explain to you, but I know it was real. (laughs) In that moment, I started to cry. And I didn't cry because of grieving mom, though I had done that already, and I've done it since. I started to get tears in my eyes, which doesn't happen to me very often, because in that moment, something was welling up in me. And, And the only way I can explain it to you is this, in which God was saying to me, it's okay. It's okay. You're okay. Dad's going to be okay. The situation is bleak, but I'm in your life, and it's okay. And in that moment, again, I'm a man. It's hard for me to explain my emotions. But even in the midst of the discouragement and even in the midst of, of, of what I was feeling down and all that, Something started to well up in me. Richard, you ever had it? Something started to well up in me. That those tears started to even put a smile on my face. And I started to get this thirst for more of God and this longing and desire for more of Him and this feeling that it's okay, He's on the throne. And the feeling that I had, the Bible calls joy. Maybe now you can see why joy is a longing and a desire built upon hope and that Lewis is right, it's more satisfying than any other desire. See, he's right about that because I experienced that in that moment. And see, here's the confounded nature of it. When I woke up the next day, dad was still depressed. I was still fat. The situation was still bleak. I I mean, nothing in my circumstances had changed. I was still battling the same emotions, but something had happened to me. Better yet, someone had happened to me in my dad's basement sitting on a futon, and it was God, and it was his joy. How joyful people think, it can be really true for you. The promise is the same no matter what your circumstances, but I'll share this with you. I fight this fight every day. In other words, I can tell you a victory on December 23rd where you guys were lighting, or December 24th, you guys were lighting candles and singing Silent Night. But it would not be unusual for me to be driving home this afternoon on the 101 and have somebody cut me off. And in the moment, something rises up in me. And in that moment, I got to fight for that next moment of joy. That's how it works. I write about that in the book. This is not a quick fix. This is not formulaic. This is a relationship that you have with the living God who wants your joy to be full, but it takes a lifetime to get there. You got to get into the rugged realm of learning how to think and experience and posture your life to be in the best position so that the fruit of the spirit of joy might be yours. And all you need to know is that as your pastor, I'm in it with you. Cactus and venue and chapel, I'm in it with you. We are going to be on a holy hunt for joy. Don't you let me off the hook. When you see me caving into my cynicism and pessimism, which I, by the way, I've mastered in 54 years of living, you remind me 
that joy can be mine if I will but fight the good fight. And I'm gonna do the same for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that this entity called joy come right from you, given by you, is such a profound and powerful thing that you elevate it to such great heights in your word. And God, I thank you that rightly understood, we can begin to aim for the right thing here. And that is that longing and desire built upon hope that you want us to experience. Lord, I think of the psalmist in Psalm 42, when he says, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And Lord, how that is a, a verse there of joy and hope, because that's where joy is found. Father, I pray for everybody here and watching online and at our campuses and venues. I pray, God, that you would indeed make them in their spirit, cause them in their spirit to be on a holy hunt for joy. And may they not rest until they find their joy in you. Lord, may we buck the trend here in America among Christians. May we be not those who stink at joy, but those who are truly joyful and infect joy to the world around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be back. God bless you guys. Have a great day.